You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to another episode of The Autodidact on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Today, by popular request, we're going to take up the task of how to read a poem. And where shall we start? Well, we start with a poem uh, normally. Uh, I know people, including my uh, wife, who likes to read introductions to, to books. I never read introductions until I've read the book. Because otherwise, you're, you're already your mind is already being falsely prepared. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes, uh, reading a poem without any background whatsoever, or even knowledge of the language, can help a non-poet to hear the music of the poem. And that's why Ezra Pound recommended uh, that you read a lot of poetry in foreign languages, especially languages you don't know or, or know very very badly. But once you once we get beyond that point of uh, re- reading like a Martian, uh, it's normal. Uh, we have to assume some foundation of knowledge for reading any poem uh, other than something written in our own lifetime. You know, uh, there, for example, you it is it is sometimes helpful to know the language, including uh, the dialect and the period. We uh, we all speak English, uh, who are listening to this program and, uh, and doing it, but uh, many people do not find the language of Shakespeare, for example, natural, uh, and they have to look up a lot of words. I, I don't know, uh, say, for the average American college graduate today, I'm not sure they can read Ernest Hemingway without notes or help, but certainly they have trouble reading, uh, say, <clears throat> Wordsworth. So uh, both in general and in particular, uh, one has to learn the language. In general, it's very helpful to have read a lot of Shakespeare, Milton, and the uh, King James translation of the Bible, the authorized version, because this helps to train your ear and your vocabulary. uh, And it's very important for Americans to get this broader vocabulary. So you need, you know, and and of course, if you're reading in the Scottish dialect or you're reading in a cowboy dialect, you should have, try to have some knowledge of that language. There's, um, are you saying there's a cowboy dialect, Dr. Fleming? Damn straight. (laughs) The, um, then there's a historical background. Um, for example, uh, if you're reading Homer, it helps to know the names of the pr- of the principal gods and what they what they preside over, uh, and the uh, and the kind of basic religious views. Uh, today, if there were a poem written, you know, uh, in 2018, we'd assume some knowledge of pop culture, uh, music, movies. You know, you'd have you'd you'd assume references to the Avengers movies and uh, the 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 beautiful music of uh, of uh, our friend Rex Scott's favorite band, Eddie Van Halen. Uh, but to read Virgil, Homer, or Milton, uh, uh, you to understand the context, you should understand, for example, the religion. Uh, in the case of Milton, that he's a a, a puritanical Protestant uh, Christian. 
And, um, you know, and for obviously for Virgil and Homer, there's there's a or any poet in any period outside our own. And when you get into certain types of poetry, like satire, satire is going to use a lot of um, references to historical experiences that everybody knows at the time. It's like a comedy routine. You can make all sorts of Donald Trump jokes that 10 years from now, nobody is going to get Trump. Who is that? We're Americans. We have the right to forget every every decade what, what we've uh, lived through. Um, there are some advantages just to plunging in and kind of get a sense of where you are, just as when you're reading, uh, reading in a foreign language, there's some uh, there's some merit in plunging ahead and reading to the end of the paragraph and seeing how much you can get. But eventually you, you do have to start uh, understanding the context. Years ago, I mean, many decades ago, when I was trying to study uh, the poetry, uh, English poetry of the 17th century, some of the best poetry is satiric poetry about the politics. And you have to study a lot to understand uh, Absalom and Achitophel, Dryden's great satiric masterpiece. You have to understand who's who's plotting against whom and doing what in, in the period. So uh, there, there's so context, background, language are helpful, but you mustn't let them get in your way. You know, it's like uh, there are aspects of poetry which are simply musical and you can hear the beauty before you before you necessarily understand all the uh, the words and what they mean. Well, I mean, I think you've alluded to this in, in other episodes of other shows before, Dr. Fleming, but I think what you're saying is you're going to get as much as you bring to it, right? So, and, and you're still capable of getting something even if you don't necessarily bring anything to it. But the more you bring, the more you can get. That's, that's exactly right. And one of the things, uh, I, I used to write obsessively about this when I was a young man because I hate literary criticism. By criticism, I don't mean people who develop fine faculties and tell you what, what is good writing and what is bad writing, but l- literary hermeneutics where you treat uh, you treat a novel or a poem of Wordsworth as if it were wholly writ, and then you have to tease out of it what the author would have said had he only been as clever as the critic is. And so people will read a poem, say some, uh, uh, just a straightforward poem, The World is Too Much With Us, Late and Soon. And before long, the critics get this poem, and it, it, it goes off into outer space. The, the, uh, I used to say, this is maybe a little <clears throat> off color, but that uh, a relationship between the poet and his readers is that it's it's a it's a relationship of love and affection whereas the critic enters it becomes an obscene menage a trois and the critic has no place read don't don't read other people's interpretation unless you're actually having to write about it and then you have to grapple with it but it's better to be wrong on your own than blindly to follow some supposed expert because poetry is a way it's a question of finding your way like my, when i would take my children to cities like uh, rome or paris or london or siena or florence um, they would say, Dad, do you know where you are? Not really. Uh, and they'd say, well, well are we lost? Yes. And it's because you never know a city until you have got lost in it and then found your way to where you're going. If you take a GPS system with you, 
as my friend Mark Atkins used to do, you never actually see the city. You're always, your mind is always, your, your eyes are on the iPhone or the GPS system. And, uh, but learning to read maps and to, and to see the city with your own eyes and find your way through it. This is a, yes, you look stupid in front of other people. I was once after leading a guided tour of Milan at the end of the trip, a, uh, a doctor's wife presented me with a compass as a present. And uh, I did not take it as an insult because, you know, Milan's a big city. And uh, but getting lost in a poem and uh, being puzzled by it. And then one day waking up and you say, aha, that's what he meant. Uh, you can't have that if you have a, a ready made interpretation that you've uh, borrowed from uh, from a book. Right. Or if that uh, interpretation is is ironclad, I I. And I'm struggling, so I'm going to say it's an apocryphal story, but Robert Frost was sitting in the back of a lecture about one of his poems, and he, he remarked afterwards, well, I didn't know that's what I meant. <laughs> uh, but it seems to fit Frost, and, it, and I think it's instructive to our point here that, yes, obviously there is some, some benefit to be had, but you know, why take the critic's word for it? I, I like your wife rather like reading introductions, but I, I think your point is well taken that there's already going to be an effect once you've been told of at least one opinion. You're, you're forced to either feel favorably towards that opinion or unfavorably, and that will color the rest of your reading. You know, it also depends on who writes the introduction. For example, if it if you're reading Johnson's Lives of the Poets, you know, Johnson giving you an introduction to a poet that you know he loves and you know Johnson, that's fine. But if it's just a uh, Joe Blow PhD from uh, Indiana State and uh, who wrote a dissertation on this subject and so he's got axes to grind, it's probably better never to read that. There are plenty of literary essayists who have something useful to say, although I usually find it better to read that introduction after I've read the book. Uh, apologies to Professor Blow from Indiana <laughs> State. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> we would be edified if, if Professor Blow was one of our listeners. The, the text you've selected today, Dr. Levine, is not what most people would consider a, a quote-unquote traditional poem. Uh, it's a, a few lines, 35 lines from Paradise Lost, and it's a description of the defeated uh, demons now, the rebel angels falling into hell. And isn't a poem supposed to be something a bit more independent, something um, imaginative, one might say? Yeah, the, uh, um, you know, the, uh, when I was in college, we were always, we had to read uh, Archie McLeish's poem, Ars Poetica, which ends with lines, a poem should be equal to not true. And then, and then after a few lines, he says, a poem should not mean, but be. Now, uh, that's, that's nice. It sounds good, but obviously the Archibald McLeish was stating an argument he wants us to regard as true. So there's a bit of a contradiction here. It was a didactic attack on the didactic view of poetry. Now, it's very true that poetry can, uh, you can get a little tired of poets who preach at you or are too uh, eloquent. You know, the great poem of Verlaine, where writing in the tradition of French poetry, which is always rhetorical, even the most romantic French poets of the 19th century are still rhetorical. And Verlaine says, take eloquence, uh, eloquence and twist its neck. 
you know, in other words, let's let's write about reality rather than uh, write these structured speeches. But um, I'm suspicious not just of this formula, uh, but all formulas and definitions that tell us what poetry is supposed to be. To begin with, we'd have to look at a wide variety of what our people in the West, going back to Homer, uh, have regarded as great poetry, and then draw conclusions from that. In other words, it's not we don't start with a rule. We start with observation. This is the Aristotelian method. If you want to know what something is, you then look at the examples of what everybody has always taken for granted. McLeish's poetry has some utility, perhaps, when we talk about lyric poetry, you know, uh, which in the English tradition is um, short, short poems, somewhat gushy, uh, talking about the, uh, the poet's feelings. But if we're going to talk about genres like lyric, we should, uh, there, are ink, there are conventions we can talk about. And uh, there's epic poetry, which is, a, of course, a narrative, tragedy, comedy, lyric, elegiac poetry, iambic poetry, and uh, the, to which the Romans, of course, added the one genre that they created, which was satire. It's not that there weren't satiric poets, but the, the genre of satire, con, conversational, talking about everything under the sun while you're poking fun, this was a specifically Roman thing. Now, if you, to, I'm, I'm bringing this up because sometimes you have to consider the genre of a poem in which a poem is written and the expectations of that genre if you want to have a mature understanding. Take uh, Homeric epic or ancient epic in the Homeric style, which includes Virgil. You're going to have, it's going to be narrative. So it's not going to be personal and gushy and full of obscure language. And there are going to be alternating scenes of drama and narrative on the one hand with speeches. Very, in fact, a huge percentage of Homer and Virgil is speeches, and people forget that when they're through with it. It'll be written in a very high, grave style, which might remind us of the language of the traditional church. Uh, it's written in, a, in, the, in the Greek case, it's written in a very specific language, in a dialect called Epic Ionic, which ep the, uh, the Ionic dialect is one of the main, main dialects of Greek, but the epic version of it incorporates older forms, like from the Aeolic dialect and from even old, probably the old uh, Mycenaean Bronze Age language. So when you start, if you, if you start reading a few lines of Homer, you begin to say, ah, this is not in the Attic Greek, you know, of Plato or, or Xenophon. This is different. Satiric or, um, or well, let me go back. Tragedy, for example, was written in mixed dialects. The, the, the uh, conversation, the dialogue, was written in basically the Attic version of Ionic Greek. That is the language spoken in Athens. And it was written in iambic meter, you know, basically four double iams. Uh, excuse me, th <laughs> three double iams. And then, however... Um, the, 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 the lyric passages, the sung passages, were written in one or another ver version of Dorian Greek, and they sound quite different, and they, they look quite different on the page. So, in other words, there are conventions. There are conventions of tone. There are conventions of dialect. There are conventions of construction. There's nothing this rich or complicated in English. 
But there are conventions that remain which distinguish one genre from another. If you're writing satire or humorous verse in general, it's written often in a, in a lower tone, unless you're Dryden. But a lot of satire is written even in it with uh, some uh, obscene language. It often takes an invective, a mocking tone, uh, a looser approach to rhythm. Again, that's true of, not true of Dryden, but it's true of a lot of uh, satire. And they're always more conventional than other genres. So these are some of the things that you have to take keep in mind. Well, and as you were mentioning the dialects, Dr. Fleming, I couldn't help but think if, if they're Ionic dialects and Doric, were, were they're Corinthian? Or I just have the, the, column, the, the columns are, are getting mixed with the dialects here. But yes, well, if, actually, you know, the Corinthians spoke a form of Dorian Greek, so they would have been at home in the, in the, in the literary Dorian. But, you know, a, say Spartans and Corinthians and Argives who, who, who spoke Dorian Greek at home, the great, the greatest poet in Greek, and all for all of them, was Homer writing in a dialect much closer to the Ionians and very different from the Dorians. So, but you had to grow up knowing these things, and so you grew up knowing several Greek dialects. Mm. Well, so keeping dialects in mind, keeping genre in mind, it, it's important. But how far should we go? Well, in English, I don't think we should go very far initially. As you become a more and more mature reader of poetry, then you want to look into these things. But really, what, what you want is to, to bear in mind, though, that if you're reading Pope's Iliad, it's going to have a lofty style, and it's going to have a certain structure and things, and you can't expect it to read like, say, Philip Larkin. You know, it can't, it's not just going to be, every, you know, everyday common speech or W.H. Auden. So, but, but at, in the beginning, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't go too far. You don't want to be studious. You don't want to treat poetry as if uh, it's sociology, something you have to study because you're supposed to know it, even though it really has nothing to tell you. So what should we be on the lookout for in Paradise Lost as we are English yeah. speakers? Well, first of all, it's it is an epic. That is, it's a it's a, it's the story of uh, of uh, you know man's disobedience uh, to to God and what happens as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience. So it's we're going to be dealing with very lofty characters. Even the evil character, even Satan, is a very lofty character, and uh, and of, and and Adam and Eve have. Even even in their lovemaking scenes, Adam and Eve are very uh, are very dignified and um, larger than life. It's written in a grave tone, very Latinate diction. You know, if say the, uh, a writer today would be writing about forty percent in say using Latin and French words based. Um, you know, Milton is going to be more like eighty percent or ninety percent, apart from words like "and" and "the." It'll have an it'll have a narrative. It'll have description. It'll have dialogue, um, and we mustn't expect it to be full of what the English teachers like to call imagery. You know, all if you go to a, a high school or college English class, they talk a lot about similes, metaphors, imagery, as if that is the basis of poetry. Um, it is not. Uh, it, it is. It is among the uh, the ornaments of poetry, and it can be very powerful, and uh, and uh, very persuasive. But you mustn't confuse 
uh, imagery with poetry. So, for example, if somebody writes gaudy prose today, somebody will say, that's very poetic. No, it's just gaudy prose. And uh, so it's important to understand that in so in epic poetry, you're not going to find a lot of simile. Uh, which reminds me of Ogden Nash's famous lines, you know, one thing most modern poets would be better for is a more restricted use of simile and metaphor. And I I heartily endorse that. And secondly, uh, we should have to read Paradise Lost without some knowledge of the of the story and the characters satan and the lesser devils adam and eve uh the uh, michael and gabriel um you know this would be quite difficult and i think one of the reasons people don't read milton is uh that they don't they the, the christian world is alien to to so so many uh, modern people, and a general familiarity with the Bible and with biblical language is, uh, I would think, it would be very useful. But again, these things uh, you pick up in time. So, if you're talking about the familiarity of the Bible, some people might argue, well, Doctor, I mean that the war in in heaven that's not biblical, is it? No, it's not. There are uh, some oblique references in the New Testament. Um, the um, there's that strange passage in which our our Lord sees the fall of Lucifer from heaven as if as if he's witnessing it, and I, I think there's an enormous amount in that in that vision and that because for him being into uh, the. Well, it's wrong to speak of the divine and the human aspects of Jesus because they're completely intermingled. But to the extent he is divine at this point, that is, he emphasizing only that time doesn't exist. To the extent he's merely the son of Mary, I know he has all our limitations, but the divine keeps breaking through the human shell. Uh, one of the funny things, you know, is uh, there's so much we don't really know in the Bible. For example, uh, we know it from tradition. We don't know it from the Bible, and I, I accept the tradition is true. But if you were just an objective reader looking at the Bible, you'd say, um, you know, this tempter, the tester in Job, how do, is that Satan? Doesn't seem to be. He lives out. He, he's, uh, God says, what are you doing? He meets him in heaven with the sons of heaven. And he says, oh, I've been going to and fro upon the earth and walking up and down on it. Well, wait a minute. You know, you don't, one doesn't imagine, one doesn't imagine Satan or any of the rebel angels hanging out in heaven. Well, you know, I know I've, I've been fired, but I thought I'd come and have a few drinks with the, bo- with the boys. Right. And everyone else is uneasy. Right. You know, he's around. <laughs> But, you know, uh, someone had someone had made that point that to what you're saying that now is we have Satan taking our Lord and taking him up to a great height and showing him the world. Yeah. And, and some some fathers of the church had commented it's repugnant to think of, you can say, Satan laying his hands on or yeah. taking our Lord anywhere. But, yeah. but this is part of, of that of the point that you're making yes and uh now here we're we we see him as the true as uh, the diabolos the slanderer the man who uh the creature that hates mankind and wants and the, the one who slanders job and now is 
not tempting Jesus. This is a terrible misunderstanding of a very important text, not tempting him in the English sense, but making a trial to find out who and what he is. Is he He's got this horrible suspicion that this is something more than just a prophet, that this may be what what if it what if this is the Son of God? The sky is after all opened up, and we've heard the voice of the voice of God and the Holy uh, saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the the scene that someone, at least John the Baptist, has seen the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. Well, this must be quite alarming. Satan must know the some of the prophecies, and he has, after all, uh, he is angelic, he, he's evil. And his mind is clouded, but he has greater greater intellectual power than it could be imaginable by human beings. So, but he wants to find out what is this, what is this, and to do that, he he simply puts him through a number of tests. And when we, of course, pray to be lead us not into temptation, it's because we don't want to be put to the same test because we're perhaps we will be tried and found wanting. In fact, almost in inevitably. So, but it but it is so. So there are legendary parts which come. Some of them come from the Talmudic tradition. Some of them come from uh, church fathers. And uh, but even 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 the snake in the garden. We're not we're not informed that the snake is Satan. We take the, the in the Jewish tradition, it becomes. Uh, become Satan. And um, I, I, I don't want to sound heretical because I think when people wrote down the various passages of scripture, and this is totally off the point, but in the, as the Bible evolves, it does evolve. I mean, it becomes, if you read the book of Jonah, this is not the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, you know, it's basically, uh, I hate the Gentiles. I can cheat them. I can rob them of their wives. They're, they're, they're evil. I get to kill all of them. And whereas Jonah, uh, you know, it's a it's a very beautiful and powerful narrative. And, you know, Jonah gets mad because the Ninevites uh, uh, are repent and he walks off and he sits under a gourd plant, which then dies. And and uh, the Lord comes and says, what are you? Do you do well to be angry? You didn't make the gourd plant. You're mad about that. I created all, a city of 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, meaning they're just deluded. You know, and you think I would be given it, it, I shouldn't be angry about killing 120,000 people. And, uh, you know, poor Jonah, you know, <laughs> what he says nothing. So believe me, this, this is an enormous change. And because the Holy Spirit works through history and, you know, gradually enlightening us. It's not just given, a revelation is not just given with a bang. And no, this is not a justification for loose interpretation of scripture or, or tradition. Well, let, let's, let's, let's go back. Stephen, make a, make a stab at reading aloud lines 35 to 45, but uh, just read following the sense with no attention to the meter or anything else. Just read like, you are a dummy who is reading poetry for the first time. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my my best. Well, actually, thing. line thirty four. We'll start at the beginning. <laughs> my best my best dummy imitation. I'm I, I'm gonna try real hard, Dr. Fleming. Uh, the infernal serpent, he it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge, deceived the mother of mankind. What time his pride had cast him out from heaven, with all his host of rebel angels by whose aid aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers. He trusted to have equaled the Most High if he opposed, and with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised impious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt. 
Him, the almighty power, hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky. Good. You know, because you can't help, but uh, even somebody who knows nothing cannot help but uh, pick up the rhythm a little bit. Um, so w- let's describe, Stephen, what is, what is um, w- let's talk about this verse line. How, what, what's the rhyme scheme? Well, you're as you say, you're feeling it even as as yeah. you're trying not to. It's done to ton to ton. You can you can feel it as you read it. Yeah, it's ten ten syllables basically, except for when we uh, have a, uh, have a very, little variations, uh, alternating uh, unstressed and stressed. So da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum. So it's just regular pattern. Now this is this is this is what a machine. If you had a computer that was writing poetry, it would all sound like that. There's also uh, there is no rhyme, of course. This is bl- so-called blank verse. Um, our friend of Rozov says blank verse isn't poetry, but uh, he's, he has a Russian ear. What can we say? Um, there's usually in English verse at uh, in uh, from the beginning. Uh, there's usually a break after the fourth or fifth syllable, uh, sometimes the sixth, and by I mean a, a word break. Now it doesn't necessarily mean it will be the main pause of the lo- syntactical break of the line if there is one, but it means an obligatory break there. Um, in earlier poetry, it was like three times out of four, it would be after the fourth syllable, and if there was a syntactic break, it would be at that point. But uh, by Milton's time, there's uh, the the breakthroughs made by Marlowe and Shakespeare and others gave us a much more fluid uh, and beautiful verse line. So the infernal serpent, that's after uh, that's after the the fifth syllable. He it was whose guile stirred up with envy again fifth the mother of the mother of there's technically of is okay mankind, but more more really six had cast him out. Number from heaven, number fourth, fourth of rebel angels, fifth to set himself for he trusted to for if he opposed for against the throne for raised impious war for so you see the point. Uh, so it's four, uh, five and four are the dominant uh, breaks of the line, and so the line is arranged around that. If we were really going to get heavy into analyzing the sound of English verse. We could say a lot about how uh, you can uh, arrange certain effects uh, taking advantage of this, but we're not going to talk about that. The easiest lines to analyze are perhaps uh, lines uh, 39 to 42. Uh, to set himself in glory above his peers, he trusted to have equaled the most high if he opposed and with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised imp- but see, so this, these are these are lines where there's hardly uh, any uh, anything to worry about. However, so now read read now try to read this these same ten lines as if you were a, a computer that hadn't learned his versification very well. So uh, so if there are mistakes, make the mistakes. Okay, to set himself in glory above his peers he trusted to have equaled the most high if he opposed and with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of god okay 
So now here, now let's look at some of the complexities. Now, there's something which in, in, uh, in when we're talking about classical verse is called elision. And elision is when two vowels come together and, and uh, one of them disappears. In English, it's, uh, it's very restricted. But uh, one of the most common elisions, that is where you lose the value of a syllable, is the word the before an uh, unaccented syllable beginning with a vowel. It does, it's not supposed to work if the syllable is accented, though there are crude satirists of the late 16th and early 17th century who do that, but it, that basically gets eliminated. So you don't say the infernal serpent, he it was whose guile. You, it, to to over-exaggerate, you'd say the infernal serpent. The, the, the infer now, in fact, what we'll do is probably put a glide in the infernal serpent. He it was whose guile. And we have several examples of this. Uh, for example, um, let's see, we've got uh, the word heaven becomes heaven. Uh, we've got so we're familiar with that from. A lot, uh, like the famous line of Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, let heaven and nature say, not let heaven and nature, let heaven and nature. So you could do that with a, when you have a short vowel before an N or, or an R or certain other sounds, but it, it, it's natural. So we have a line like the almighty power, you know, so both the the is swallowed up the almighty, but also it's not the the almighty power. No, even though it's spelled that way, it's the almighty power to set himself in now or, or, or to set himself in glory above his peers. You see how it's not glory above, but glory above how that 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 yeah sound of the Y uh, is swallowed into the following uh, unaccented syllable to set himself in glory above his peers. Now, it doesn't disappear entirely because that would sound very phony. Any questions on this, Stephen? Did they teach no, you in school? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm still recovering from practicing being a dummy and a robot back to back. <laughs> I don't know what my next trick will yet be. Well, you have an iPhone and that'll produce both those effects. <laughs> You know, I, I have a lot of nerve, by the way, making fun of people with uh, iPhones, iPads, computers, because in our house we have right now, we have the iMac, which we're doing this on, and I have a, uh, a dying MacBook Air. I have a Kindle. I used to have an iPad, but I left it on a train in Italy, and my wife has an iPad, and we have two iPhones but it's it's just a question of how you use them. And the less I use them, the happier uh, I am. But you know, the, the ugly truth is we couldn't be doing this broadcast. We couldn't be doing anything with our foundation. I mean, what, I'd have to have a staff, you know, at least two secretaries and a, you know, all sorts of different people. And so uh, you, I accept the limitations of the world I live in and we'll Go forward. I, I wish I wish I could get along without an automobile the way Novorossov does in Palermo. You know, he doesn't even have a driver's license. He refuses. Okay, so we've talked about elision. 
Then we have another problem. This is often called anaclysis. And there are sort of semi-anaclysis. And that is, if the basic, and, and Milton doesn't do this as much as, say, Shakespeare and the dramatists, except sometimes in, con in the, the speech parts. And so we don't have much of it here. The order of the, the, the uh, accents is reversed. So instead of saying da-dum, da-dum at the beginning of the line, the infernal serpent stirred up with envy, the mother of, um, you can reverse it and, and to make what is sometimes called a chorion, dum, da-da-dum. Now, Milton is very, uh, very clever about this. And what he does typically is he uses two monosyllables, because with two monosyllables, the ictus or the, the verse accent can go on either syllable. So if you take uh, line two, stirred up, well, stirred, it could be stirred up with envy or stirred up with envy. I think that would be a more natural way of saying it in English because stirred is um, a heavier syllable. It takes, it takes a little longer to say, so it tends to dominate. Had cast. Uh, we got, so we have all of these uh, two short, two, things are two short syllables in a row, that with, mixed with. Now, Less finicky poets, and especially poets dealing with dramatic dialogue, uh, don't don't uh, don't worry about using a monosyllable, uh, two monosyllables together. They simply reserve the right to accent the first syllable of the line and then have the next syllable unaccented. This is this reversal. This it's, in Greek it means breaking up the ana anaclysis. And this is, gives you the opportunity for varying the music of the line against Milton. Milton, and this, this part of Paradise Law is not uh, perhaps the best example of this, but he repeatedly uses two monosyllables in a row, and it halfway reverses the accent because the heavier monosyllable often uh, comes first. The other place where you get anaclysis is, is after the, uh, the primary break. If you, have, uh, if you have, for example, if the line is, the break is after the fifth syllable, da dum da dum da, you will find poets who then go dum da da dum 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 da dum da. So, in other words, you'll start, and there's a, there's a, a purpose to that. When we if when we do some follow up shows, which I hope we do on this, um, one of the things we could show is how you can vet, you can use anaclysis, that is changing uh, the uh, the uh, the accent pattern at the beginning of a line, and and in the the previous line can uh, run over the sense, and and you'd also then change you 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 change the pattern of. The, the midline break. That's fair. It's complicated, and we're not going to go into it today. But to, before we leaving Anaclysis, we we do want to sh uh, end this subject. You know, most of these lines are more or less end stopped. In other words, there's a major sense pause at the end of the line. The infernal serpent, he it was whose guile, comma, stirred up with envy and revenge, but here deceived the mother of mankind. Uh, but more, you know, there's usually not just a word break, but some sort of sense break. And when you, when you, um, when you uh, 
run over, so sometimes use the French term enjambement or enjambment. When you when you run the sense over, it's good to vary uh, the 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 metrical pattern and the and the and the breaks within the line so that it doesn't sound like it's uh, perpetual motion. Da dum 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 da dum. So start up with envy and revenge. Pause. Deceived the mother of mankind. And notice how that line, the mother. What you the, what you hear is the mother of mankind. In other words, it's it the the the, the pause comes late. Um, so we this this is this is a this is one of the things to watch for. We'll talk more about this. Other poets work this much longer, uh, much much harder. Okay, so enough for that. Let's talk about the music of verse. If you were, if we were in a freshman English class or sophomore English, uh, one of the things they would talk about is alliteration. English is very strong on alliteration. That is repeating you the consonant, uh, uh, beginning a word with the same with the same consonants. Milton uh, doesn't use as much alliteration as some poets. So the Anglo in Anglo-Saxon poetry, alliteration. Is, the, is one of the dominant aspects of the verse. But uh, as you later on, it's used either more for humorous effect or for, um, uh, for, for, for having something really descriptive. We do have it here though. Um, for example, hurled headlong, you see, uh, uh, again, the re repetition of the H sound or both both of lost happiness and lasting pain. So the, the, the two adjectives, lost and lasting, beginning with L and then paralyze, then they, they parallel, of course, happiness and pain. So this is, uh, so alliteration, the repetition of the, uh, the especially of the initial sound. You, there can be other forms of alliteration, but, but what you often see is the initial letter. Any uh, any question, comment? I'm furiously taking notes, Dr. Fleming, as I'm sure our <laughs> listeners are. Yeah, oh, the listeners who haven't turned off by now, yeah. More complicated than alliteration is the question of assonance. Assonance uh, refers to vowel, the repetition of vowels. Normally in textbooks, they talk about uh, the repetition of the same or a similar vowel. And while it's true that all vowels theoretically might count the same, English is a stressed language. It comes out of Anglo-Saxon as opposed to French, which has, it, which has some stress. There tends to be a stress on the last syllable of a word, but French is more, um, the, the sentence has its own development of accent. And really it's a, much less important in French than it is to English. So in English, the stressed vowels carry the melody. Now, Milton is a master and his use of assonance is a very important aspect of what is sometimes described as Milton's organ tones. In other words, he's got these rolling, beautiful sounds that come out of him. And so we have a line like, against the throne and monarchy of God, O, O, ah. You know, so you see, those uh, that the repetition of those ovals or confounded though immortal but his doom so slight variations on all vowels now these ovals are open 
That is, you, you're, you, uh, if you're a, if you're a linguist, that is your, the, your mouth is pronounces oh, uh, and and the other big O vowel is ah, and and then ooh, and or oh, and, and they and and they they are formed somewhat the same way in the mouth. And these re- these sounds are regarded as noble and magnificent. And so when you want to have magnificent lines, confounded though immortal, but his doom. You see, monarchy of God. These are uh, these 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 are elevating lines. Um, well, and as you're as you're walking us through these, Doctor Fleming, I can't help but think of of some of the tongue twisters of various languages that that people like to engage in. If you you know, Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers. Yes. That part part of that, as you feel your mouth go through that exercise, is uh, a forcing of your mouth to obey what your brain knows that's right and that's as right. you're taking as you're taking us through this this confounded though and that hopefully our listeners are repeating along with you hopefully they can observe their mouth and see how it's reacting to uh what's being said and that 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 is part of of the enjoyment of it the, the delight again as a native speaker is going to ex- have that experience uh, in, in 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 starker relief because they're able to feel feel those those surfaces as you're as you're taking us through them yeah you know but of course peter piper picked a peck of pickled peppers is an outstanding example of alliteration where every 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 word begins with the p sound um it is um it is helpful uh, one of the things helpful in uh, learning the sound of poetry as i said earlier as sir pound recommends to to read uh poetry in a foreign language I think in my case, the, the, the poets who most influenced my ear were, on the one hand, uh, the lyric poet Pinder, but then uh, the French poets uh, Baudelaire and, uh, and, his, uh, and his disciples. Um, when Baudelaire writes a line, lines like his, 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 famous, his famous sonnet, uh, Il est amer et doux pendant les nuits d'hiver, D'écouter près du feu qui palpite et qui fume, des souvenirs lointains lentement s'élever au bruit d'un carillon qui chante dans la brume. I mean, this this is music. This is this is music at the level of Mozart and Haydn. And uh, reading uh, Baudelaire uh, over and over, your ear, if you, you eventually you hear les souvenirs lointains lentement. The modulation from lointain to lentement um, uh, is it's, uh, once, once your ear begins to hear this, it's uh, it's quite marvelous. Now, uh, so the open vowels o, a, u give you magnificence. The short vowels e, a, i give you uh, speed, lightness, and quickness. And so one of the things you want to do is to be able to, when, if you are, if you're describing a butterfly flitting through the air, you're not going to use big, heavy O, ah, and O vowels. You will, anytime you're trying to suggest lightness, uh, and, and I'm not saying any, any kind of really crude onomatopoeia, Poies, poiesis. That is not just like you're really imitating the sound, but rather you're you're, you're suggestive. You're, you're it's under the surface. You would use these really short vowels. 
Now, an important, and I would say more important than assonance is the, voc the vowel melody, the vocalic melody, which is created by alternating different vowel sounds. And this is very hard uh, to study. You can see, and oh, 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 or oh, ah, oh, oh. Yes, I, I get that. That's easy. But when you start talking about constructing more varied melodies, uh, it becomes uh, uh, more difficult. But it's but for example, to set himself in glory above his peers, notice the glory again, we have to swallow that. So if we just hear the dominant vowels, eh, eh, o, o, e. You see, so we begin with two short s, then we go to two o vowels, and then end with this distinctive, this English vowel, e, peers. This is, this, it, and we could go through all of Milton. We could spend we could spend twelve hours, and you have to look at each instance. And but you can you can begin to train your ear. Now, what I did as a as a dopey kid, uh, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, I would uh, I did terrible, stupid things. I would I would establish a vowel pattern, and then uh, and then write a poem based uh, on the music of the, and, and, and so I would have to pick words <laughs> to match the vowel pattern I had decided was beautiful based on my study of Greek and Latin and uh, French poetry. <clears throat> now, obviously that is no way to write poetry or to, but it did, it did train my ear to a keenness, which I don't think uh, I would have uh, otherwise. So they're all, there are very complicated patterns. We don't want to go into it, but what we want to suggest is by, by using the uh, patterns of vowels and patterns of consonants. And some other time we'll go, we can go in because there are certain consonants that are very beautiful. <clears throat> you know, Ernest Dowson thought uh, that the, the, the V sound was, you know, the, uh, was the most beautiful sound in English. But uh, there's, 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 there, are, there are consonant sounds that slow you down like M and N and L, these liquids, they're, they're, then when you put uh, too many consonants together, which is a real problem in English that you have to watch, uh, watch out against. So for example, a word like uh, watched clock, uh, you know, a watch uh, is a watched clock. Well, gee, this is in, in a, a Roman or, or a Italian or a Greek would be, would be uh, putting their fingers to their ears, say, how can you speak that way? And uh, this is one of the reasons why it's easier to write beautiful poetry in French and Italian than in German or English, because in German and English, we have so many of these, uh, these uh, consonants that cluster together and slow everything. They're, it's like tongue twisters. Milton, of course, works very hard to avoid that. <clears throat> now, there are serious constraints However, we could we can we can we could pretend that we could write a poem based on an ideal sequence of vowels and consonants, and then you come up with the gibberish I was writing at the age of 18 or 19. There are serious constraints on what a poet can do with this. He has to tell his story, for example, uh, in the case of Paradise Lost. He has to make points uh, in, in the various speeches. He has to use the best uh, words available. And unlike a Greek or Latin poet who is free to use any word order he wants, the English poet cannot go, cannot depart too, too much from the subject verb 
word order. Although we'll see in a, in a second that Milton does that probably more than any English poet, certainly than any uh, masterful English poet. Whereas you know people like Homer, like Homer or Virgil, or especially say Pindar and Horace, they can they can they can work these marvelous melodies of sound. Of harmonies of vowels and consonants because they can arrange the words as they as they want. I think I don't know if we were talking about this last time, but uh, you know P Plato, who on his deathbed was found slumped over the manuscript of the Republic, and he had written five different versions of the first sentence. Yesterday I went down to the Piraeus because he was working the sound of of the line. Now this is a level of art which we will never reach in English prose. We can only hope to reach occasionally in, uh, in English verse. And it's sometimes um, not our most uh, famous splendid poets who do the, like A.E. Hausman does among the best jobs of this, of, uh, of anybody. But of course, Hausman was also the greatest Latin scholar in the English language at, of his time. So what you can do, what, what Virgil and Horace could do and Milton tries to do somewhat in some of his poetry, imitating them, generally is not an option. So let's move on to uh, this whole, this business of uh, the word order. Milton, in order to uh, make his poem, the, the d description more dramatic, more effective, more abrupt, sometimes more powerful, he will use an altered word order that uh, that you have to begin to uh, study and hear. With vain attempt, him the almighty power hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire. Now, this is not a sentence you could, even if you straightened out the, uh, the, the, the word choice, this is not a sentence whose word order would be possible in modern English, especially beginning with the unstressed pronoun, him, and putting a stress on it. With vain attempt, him, the almighty power, hurled headlong, flaming from the edge, etc. So this is the sort of uh, thing which, even in this passage, we can see, um, oh, and, and by the way, I left out, in adamantine, adamantine chains and penal fire, and then we go back to the hymn, who durst defy the omnipotent arms. In other words, the, 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 the hymn and, the, and, the, and the, the one who defies, the, 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 the flight of, the, the fall of Satan through the, um, through the heaven, when he is uh, struck by uh, by by uh, Michael, uh, that it, it's it's particularly effective and demanding, uh, 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 powerful. Nine, and then this is a very famous line. It's an imitation, of course, of, uh, from uh, the ancients. Nine times the space that measures day and night to mortal men, he with his horrid crew lay vanquished, rolling in the fiery gulf, confounded though immortal. But his doom reserved him to more wrath, for now the thought, both of lost happiness and lasting pain, torments him. Round he throws his baleful eyes, mixed, uh, that witnessed huge affliction and dismay, mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate. So um, the rhetoric of Milton in his both descriptions and 
especially in his speeches. He was well-trained in, uh, in both the stylistic aspects, but also the organizational aspects of Greek rhetoric. And you could learn a lot about writing campaign speeches by studying the structure of a uh, Miltonic dialogue. <clears throat> so any questions on this? No, I, I, I think you're very much enlarging these lines for our listeners. I mean, I think that's uh, underlining the point for, for this episode. Okay. Well, uh, we don't want to uh, uh, belabor it too much. One thing, uh, usually if you, if you had a book, like a, a college textbook, a, a pretty good one, like, for example, there was one called Sound and Sense uh, used uh, back 50 years ago. Um, they would, when in analyzing poetry, they usually stuck to things like, uh, you know, imagery, metaphors, similes, uh, lang the language, the style, and all of that. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't get you too far with Milton. For example, uh, Milton in this passage, he, he, he does use some extended similes in Paradise Lost in, 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 in the epic fashion, you know, because like in Homer, just as a shepherd, you know, tending his flocks, when he sees a lion appear and, you know, goes on, so did the, and so did the soldiers retreat from the powerful Ajax or whatever. This is, this, this kind of thing is typical of epic and, and uh, Milton imitates it, but the kinds of uh, beautiful uh, metaphors and images you get, especially from the romantic poets until uh, the present, this is not a primary concern for a, uh, a poet like Milton, although it is in, uh, in Shakespeare. So there's no similes or obvious metaphors, but there is this powerful paradoxical language for, that uh, he can use. For example, when um, he's describing hell, as far at once as far as angels kin, that is as far as the knowledge of an angel could spread, he views the dismal situation, waste and wild, a dungeon horrible on all sides round, as one great furnace flamed. Of course, that's a, that is a simile. It's fl flaming like a furnace. Uh, yet from those flames, no light, but rather darkness visible, served only to discover sights of woe. Uh, by the way, the word discover typically in older English does not mean that Columbus discovered America, but to uncover, you know, so, so re to reveal. So no light but darkness visible was so powerful and a line and so uh, challenging to a rational mind that the great Richard Bentley, one of the uh, greatest classical scholars of, uh, in the English tradition, and uh, Bentley had this theory that uh, Milton dictated the poem to, uh, because he was blind, he dictated the poem to his dumb daughters and that they inserted things which they misheard. And so Bentley emended the line to uh, uh, no light, but transpicuous gloom, <laughs> which is a ra perfectly rational, intelligent line, but uh, Bentley sort of, Missed the point. Now, I, I, there's a, I know somebody wrote a book on on uh, justifying Bentley's work on, on on Milton. In fact, there is a lot of good in it. But really, if you if you are if you are uh, deaf to one of the most powerful lines in English poetry, perhaps you're knocking on the wrong door and barking up the wrong tree. Well, why don't we uh, 
uh, finish, now that we've talked about it, and we've talked about accidents, alliteration, anachlysis, the pattern of, of pauses within the line, rhetorical uh, inversions of subject and object, etc. Why don't we finish without, without comment, um, as if this were a concert, and therefore nobody says anything but, a, but applause at the end of a Mozart symphony, unless you happen to be going to a Midwestern concert and they applaud between movements. Uh, <laughs> So why don't you read the whole passage, uh, Stephen? So me. all the way from all from way line, yeah, okay, from and, line thirty-four to the end, uh, which is like sixty-eight. So just in reflection, Dr. Fleming, having uh, first played uh, a dummy and then a robot, that now I have to collect all uh, of what you were talking about. I, I remember recently I had a self-defense class in which we were taught how to get out of certain chokes and holds and positions. And then we finished the class with grappling with someone else who'd been taking the same class. And I have to say, you know, after two and a half hours of instruction, when someone's arm is around your throat, you tend to forget these things. So, um, I, I, I just want to caution our listeners that I have been paying as much attention, hopefully as they have to Dr. Fleming over the last half hour, but please forgive uh, if, if the neck around my, my verbal throat uh, messes up my, my reading at all. Yes, it's a good thing I can't reach out uh, across 5,000 miles of space uh, to grab your throat. <laughs> Although Dr. Fleming does feel that urge from time to time whenever he hears people reading things incorrectly, uh, more often than, than, than less. <clears throat> the infernal serpent, he it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge, deceived the mother of mankind, what time his pride had cast him out of heaven with all his host of rebel angels by whose aid aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers. He trusted to have equaled the most high if he opposed and with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised impious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt. Him, the almighty power, hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire, who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. Nine times the space that measures day and night to mortal men, he, with his horrid crew, lay vanquished, rowling in the fiery gulf, confounded though immortal. But his doom reserved him to more wrath, for now the thought both of lost happiness and lasting pain torments him. Round he throws his baleful eyes that witnessed huge affliction and dismay, mixed with obdurate pain and steadfast hate. At once, as far as angels can, he views the dismal situation waste and wild, a dungeon horrible on all sides round. As one great furnace flamed, yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible, served only to discover sights of woe. Regions of sorrow, doleful shades, where peace and rest can never dwell. Hope never comes, that comes to all, but torture without end still urges, and a fiery deluge fed with ever-burning sulfur unconsumed. Good. Well, I will, I will take that praise and use the opportunity to end the episode before any further criticism can accrue. <laughs>
We want to thank uh, Dr. Blumin as always and thank our listeners for going deeper with us into poetry. This was something that many listeners had asked for for some time. And if it's well received, and this means comments in the comment section, then Dr. Fleming will obviously consider putting together uh, another episode um, with a different poet and a different style entirely. We've only scratched the surface. Uh, as always, thank you for your time, Dr. Fleming. Welcome. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.